Well, in our last session, we talked about some of the petty controversies that followed Spurgeon, and I introduced you to some of his early critics, and especially the cruelty of their criticism against him. Uh, we looked at how Spurgeon responded to critics and how he handled a controversy over a hymn book. And I hope you learned some practical wisdom from observing Spurgeon's style in handling carping critics and how he dealt with issues where the heat of controversy flared out of proportion to the issues under debate. And understand that if someone of Spurgeon's caliber could face as much criticism and hostility as he did, none of us are free from that. It's similar to what Christ said, if the world hated me, don't be surprised if they hate you as well. Uh, and yet I find so many Christians who think if we're just Christ-like and do what we're supposed to do, then the world should love us. But that's not what scripture teaches. And there is conflict in the Christian life. And you see that very clearly in the life of Spurgeon. And now in this hour, I want to begin to look at some of the larger more important controversies that punctuated Spurgeon's ministry. And, and you'll see, I think, that although he did not like conflict, he was not disinclined to stand firm when he needed to and to be bold and, and to earnestly contend for matters that are close to the heart of gospel truth. Uh, by now, I think you probably understand that Spurgeon was not always perceived as the most beloved and lovable Baptist preacher of all times. But in his lifetime, even a lot of other Baptist preachers despised him. And, and at the end of his life, the, sen the sentiment against him within the Baptist Union was so strong that he was more or less forced out of his denomination. Technically, he resigned but it was under intense pressure to, to, for him to get on board with everybody else or, or leave. And so he had very little choice but to leave. And then after he resigned, he was formerly, formally censured by the Baptist Union. And for the last five years, the last half decade of his life, he was generally perceived by the leaders among British Baptists as a contrary person, a stodgy, stubborn old man whose age and illness had made him cranky and cantankerous. And that, of course, was a totally unfair and uh, inaccurate assessment of Spurgeon. But he had the misfortune of being at the peak of his ministry and influence during a time of relentless decline and even apostasy that was occurring both in England and in American Christianity. And Spurgeon was not one to keep silent when he saw churches all around him giving up eternal truth uh, in favor of passing fads and novel doctrines. And so he spoke up and he was ignored. He spoke up again with more volume and greater urgency and he was hated for it. Conflict, especially conflict with other Christians, was not something he relished. I hope you understand that from what we've talked about before. Spurgeon, I've said this before, he was not a, a willing controversialist. He wasn't the type of personality who enjoyed disputes or who took pleasure in nonstop combat. He despised quarrels and controversy. And yet he loved the truth 
more than he hated controversy. And the result was he was embroiled in one kind of conflict or another for really most of his ministry. And if your knowledge of Spurgeon has always only been superficial, you might not even realize that about him because today it seems like Spurgeon is universally beloved. He is, he's portrayed as an avuncular superstar, a, a spiritual Santa who's beloved by everyone. Is that the Santa picture? I'm sorry about that. But he was by no means loved by anyone in his lifetime. In addition to the, the vitriol and the mockery that he regularly suffered from his own fellow countrymen, ill feelings about Spurgeon also came from America and especially in parts of the South in America because Spurgeon had taken an early outspoken stance against American slavery. And one angry person wrote a letter to an American newspaper saying this, if Mr. Passmore and Alabaster, that were, those were Spurgeon's publishers. I don't know if this is up there or not. Yeah, okay. If Mr. Passmore and Alabaster intend to publish the insane conceits of a beef-eating, puffed-up, vain, over-righteous, pharisaical, English blabmouth, ranting preacher of doctrine not found in the Bible, and worse, if possible, worse than the infamous book of Helper, then we think the South should know it and bestow their patronage accordingly. That's maybe the meanest thing anybody ever said because he strings together all of those insults. People have... People have called me puffed up and overrighteous and pharisaical, but nobody's ever put it all together in one sentence like that. Spurgeon never came to America, and one of the major reasons was he knew that there was a great deal of this kind of hostility against him because he had spoken out so frequently and so forcefully against Southern-style slavery. Nowadays, Spurgeon is quoted and admired by Arminians and Calvinists alike. He's claimed by both charismatics and non-charismatics. He's the closest thing Baptists have to a patron saint. And, and it doesn't matter what flavor of Baptist you're talking about. Practically everyone from the strictest hyper-fundamentalist groups to the so-called moderate Baptists who are really theologically liberal all of them are willing to, to uh, claim Spurgeon as one of their own. Strict in particular Baptists and pragmatists alike, including some of the most worldly, seeker-sensitive types, people of all theological persuasions say they love Spurgeon. I've mentioned several times this week that it irks me that even Rick Warren pretends to love Spurgeon. And yet his philosophy of ministry is as hostile to Spurgeon as it could possibly be. Rick Warren is the pastor of the largest Baptist church in America. He is a theological chameleon who doesn't seem to have really any biblical or doctrinal convictions that he's, he's not willing to adjust if necessary in order to make his audience happy. And earlier this year, I mentioned this the other night, he was, he was given the, honorary, the title of Honorary Chancellor of Spurgeon's College in London. Now, Spurgeon's College has been a theological problem for, since the 1950s, I think. 
they've, they've been off track for a long time. So it's, it's really no surprise that they would, they would bestow such an honor on Rick Warren, but it's still sort of a galling thing that people who are so much at odds with what Spurgeon stood for would try to claim him as one of their own anyway. In fact, when Rick Warren was, was declared honorary chap, uh, chancellor, the reaction from American evangelicals on Twitter was, it understandably included scores of people who expressed consternation over this. Anyone who knows anything about Rick Warren should understand, I think, that he, he, you might classify him as the anti-Spurgeon. Rick Warren and Spurgeon are literally poles apart on practically everything, ranging from their contradictory philosophies of ministry and, and their virtually opposite theological points of view and antithetical approaches to preaching and church leadership. So it is, it is irritating that Spurgeon's College gave this title to Rick Warren. But here's some of the comments that were posted in response to that news. Uh, one person wrote, this is an embarrassment to Spurgeon's name and legacy. Another person wrote, what an absolute kick of dust in the face of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon would not like this, another one wrote. And that's, that's an understatement. By the way, I didn't write any of these. I, <laughs> I kept my peace, but in my heart, I agreed with all of these. And my all-time favorite was this one. Spurgeon would roast this compromiser like a London broil. The rebuke would be likened to an atomic bomb. I think that's accurate. Spurgeon would have no time for someone who followed the philosophy of Rick Warren. All of those comments are exactly right. And uh, I think if Spurgeon could come back today to the college he founded, he'd probably ask them, he'd almost certainly ask them to take his name off of it. Anyway enough about Rick Warren. But the opposite of Rick Warren was Spurgeon, who spent his entire career defending the church against the encroachment of worldly influences, while Rick Warren has done the opposite. His goal, Rick Warren's goal, has been to try to keep the church in step with all the fads and fashions of the world. The stylish Baptists of Spurgeon's era hated him because he was against this effort to try to keep in step with where the world is going. But the most fashion-conscious Baptists of today, including Rick Warren, pretend to revere Spurgeon. They'll act like they love the guy, even though they actually stand against everything Spurgeon stood for. They're just like those hypocritical scribes and Pharisees of whom Jesus said, he scolded them, saying, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But of course, the truth is the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were infinitely worse than their ancestors because they actually colluded in putting Jesus himself to death. And in that vein, I have to say that one of the most interesting books about Spurgeon was written by a Lutheran. Helmut Thaleke is his name. He's a German Lutheran and a neo-Orthodox theologian. And Thaleke's book is called Encounter with Spurgeon. Is it up there? Yes. And some of it is quite good, especially if you bear in mind that 
Thalicke, the, the author, is German and Lutheran and neo-Orthodox, and he writes from that perspective, so he really, like Rick Warren, stands against pretty much everything Spurgeon stood for, and yet he clearly likes Spurgeon. And he's far enough from Spurgeon's era that he can safely pretend to appreciate the bold steadfastness of someone like Spurgeon. He wouldn't appreciate that in anybody today, but he can, he can act like he appreciates Spurgeon for that. In fact, listen to Helmut Thalicke from a totally different context. He wrote another book titled The Evangelical Faith, and in it he says this, quote, to do theology is to actualize Christian truth, to understand it afresh. So that's, understand what he's saying. To do theology, he says, is to, to shape Christian ideas in a fresh way that fits with today. That's actually what he was saying. And, and he went on to say, and these are his exact words, theology has nothing to do with timeless truth. Can you imagine someone saying that? And pretending to like Spurgeon, theology has nothing to do with timeless truth, he says. And that, by the way, is a typical neo-Orthodox perspective. That's, that's why we don't accept neo-Orthodoxy, even though that word orthodoxy is in the term, nothing orthodox about it. They don't believe in timeless truth. They believe that truth needs to be adapted and changed for every generation to fit with what's happening. And uh, Thalicke went on to say that Doing theology is about actualizing Christianity. It's not about affirming any or making sense of any truth in propositional form. Doing theology, he said, is about understanding religion afresh. So it's, it's like recontextualizing the faith in a new way for every generation. Now, notice that Thalicke expressly says... Christian theology has nothing to do with timeless truth. Those were his very words. And yet, Spurgeon admired, or, or Thalicke admired Spurgeon for doing theology in precisely the way Thalicke says theology is not supposed to be done. And in fact, now listen, same author, these are the opening paragraphs of Helmut Thalicke's book, Encounter with Spurgeon. He writes, in the midst of the theologically discredited 19th century, there was a preacher who had at least 6,000 people in his congregation every Sunday, whose sermons for many years were cabled to New York every Monday and reprinted in the leading newspapers of the country, and who occupied the same pulpit for almost 40 years without any diminishment in the flowing abundance of his preaching and without ever repeating himself or preaching himself dry. The fire he thus kindled and turned into a beacon that shone across the seas and down through the generations was no mere brush fire of sensationalism, but it was an inexhaustible blaze that glowed and burned on solid hearths and was fed by the wells of the eternal word. Here was the miracle of a bush that burned with fire and yet was not consumed. He goes on. In no way was he like the managers of a modern evangelistic campaign who manipulate souls with all the techniques of mass suggestions, acting like salvation engineers. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon was still unaware of the wiles of propaganda. He worked only through the power of the word, which created its own hearers and changed souls. Now, Thalic, he says, this was not his word, the product of his own rhetorical skills. It was rather a word which he himself had merely heard. He put himself at its disposal as a mere echo. His message never ran dry because he was never anything but a recipient. And he goes on to say, it would be well for a time like ours to learn from this man. Isn't that remarkable? He praises Spurgeon for all the right things. I agree with everything he says. And in fact, it's quite a good tribute to what made Spurgeon what he was. And Thalic even says it would be good if we could just learn from this man. But Thalicky himself would have been a more reliable and more edifying professor of theology if he had simply taken his own counsel to heart and learned at Spurgeon's feet how to deal with the Word of God and how to do theology as if you're dealing with, in Thalicky's own words, the eternal Word of God. I think, frankly, Thalicky had a romanticized opinion of Spurgeon. He was correct in what he said, but I think he thought of Spurgeon as someone who never created any trouble for anybody, never really said anything that you could disagree with, and Spurgeon wasn't like that at all. Now remember, Helmut Thalicke was a German Lutheran neo-Orthodox theologian and a preacher who had a very low view of Scripture and a loose view of the truth. And the reality is that he would have absolutely hated Spurgeon if they had been contemporaries. Thalicky would have been surely at the very forefront of Spurgeon's critics. But it's, it's a fact that people tend to lionize the spiritual heroes of the past, even though they scorn the same kind of courage and steadfastness in men of their own generation. Again, it's the same phenomenon Jesus himself highlighted, Luke eleven forty seven. Woe to you, scholars of the law, for you build the tombs of the prophets, but your fathers killed them. And Spurgeon noted that very same phenomenon in his era, and he mentioned it in one of his sermons in 1888. This was at the height of the downgrade controversy. In it, Spurgeon said this, quote, we must defend the faith, for what would, it have, what have, would have become of us if our fathers had not maintained it? If confessors and reformers and martyrs and covenanters had been unfaithful to the name and the faith of Jesus, where would, we, where would, the, churches have been, where would the church have been today, he says? Must we not play the man as they did? And if we do not, are we not censuring our fathers? It goes on, it's very pretty, is it not, to read of Luther and his brave deeds? Of course, everybody admires Luther. Yes, yes, but you do not want anyone else to do the same thing Luther did today. When you go to the zoological gardens, you all admire the bear. But how would you like a bear at home or a bear wandering loose about the street? You tell me that would be unbearable. <laughs> and no doubt you're right. 
So we admire a man who was firm in the faith, say, 400 years ago, because the past ages are a sort of bear pit or an iron cage for him. But such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and their contemporaries, if they had said, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we'll only make a great, a great row and we'll get ourselves into disgrace. So let us go to our chambers and put on our nightcaps and sleep over the bad times. And perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps and the pestiferous bogs of error would have swallowed all. These men love the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled on. Note what we owe them and let us pay to our sons the debt we owe to our fathers. It's a great that's a great quote from Spurgeon. I never tire of, of hearing that. And, he, and it's full of great insight. It is a fact that we tend to admire the heroes of the faith in the past. But if there are men who act like that today, we don't admire them so much. We see them as a nuisance. Spurgeon had nothing but scorn for ministers who were not willing to fight in order to earnestly contend for the faith. When, especially when some cardinal point of doctrine was at stake. And here we are today in the same boat. We don't mind reading about Spurgeon's courage and his foresight in the downgrade controversy. We just don't want anyone today to exercise that kind of discernment. And it seems to me that the great preponderance of Christians today want to ignore or downplay the fact that Spurgeon was a controversialist, that he was a warrior. They'd rather think of Spurgeon as an all-around nice guy. But it's an inescapable fact of his life that he was always at war for the truth. And yet, the same people today who, who stubbornly refuse to defend the truth, will, those people will always point to Spurgeon and pretend that they revere what he stood for. Ian Murray noticed that trend more than half a century ago, and he, he wrote The Forgotten Spurgeon. I recommended that book to you yesterday. He wrote that book to remind us of Spurgeon's controversial courage and steadfastness. Historians and biographers in the early decades of the 20th century had actually turned Spurgeon into a big sort of teddy bear who is perfectly safe and always devotional and doctrinally nondescript and ecumenically broad. And in reality, Spurgeon was none of those things. He was a convinced doctrinaire Calvinist. He was an outspoken critic of everything that was novel or superficial in theology. He was often despised and ridiculed by his own contemporaries who, who called him a, a hopelessly narrow-minded doctrinal dinosaur. And therefore, he was engaged in one controversy or another for virtually the entire span of his four-decade-long ministry. Some of them were big con conflicts. Some of them were more petty. But there were always people after him, criticizing him, trying to draw him into controversy. And sometimes he needed to enter into those controversies. 
And in that final decade before he died, faced with the twin juggernauts of modernism and broad church ecumenism, he became, Spurgeon became a rigorous separatist. We call him today a fundamentalist. In short, Spurgeon embodied everything neo-orthodoxy rejects about historical evangelical orthodoxy. He was the living emblem of everything that today's stylish evangelicals despise about historic fundamentalism. He was a strong, vocal defender of practically every doctrine that today postmodern and, and so-called progressive evangelicals have ever tried to challenge. Spurgeon defended all of those truths. And above all, he firmly believed that the offense of the cross ought to be declared openly and paraded in public and not downplayed for the sake of people who might be offended by the truth of the gospel. He would never water down the gospel just because people were offended by it. He was commonly criticized uh, for that and for being behind the times in his own era and in a, in a generation that was enthralled with modern ideas and the scientific method. Spurgeon stubbornly clung to the doctrine of the Puritans. Remember, this was the Victorian era. Novels by Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope were brand new popular bestsellers at the time. Dickens pointed out some very real social problems and Trollope's novels were generally uh, backhanded swats against conservative and low church influences in the Church of England. All of, all of Anthony Trollope's novels had the church at the center and he was a severe critic of, of pretty much every idea Spurgeon defended. And these novels made a powerful impact both within the church and in society at large. And unlike practically everybody else in his generation, Spurgeon preferred reading nonfiction over fiction, the nonfiction of the church fathers in particular, in a day when the most popular attractions on the London stage were first run editions of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, which by the way, these are mostly, if you've ever watched Gilbert and Sullivan being performed, these are mostly G-rated material by today's standards. But Spurgeon decried the theater itself as worldly and trivial, and he said it was no place for serious Christians. He absolutely hated stylish, superficial religion. In other words, he was well known for his outspoken, uh, outspoken opposition to some of the most popular trends of his time. And Spurgeon himself was fiercely hated, deeply and angrily despised by the Christians of that era who were so desperate to stay in step with everything that was stylish. A few years ago, the Banner of Truth magazine published an article that I have kept linked on the front page of my website ever since. The title of the article is, Are You Sure You Like Spurgeon? Is it, did it go up there? Oh, good. See, I can't see that, so I'm just guessing at what slide is up there. It's titled, Are You Sure You Like Spurgeon? It's written by Alan Mabin. And Mabin points out that Spurgeon's doctrinal stance would set him firmly against virtually every idea that makes contemporary American evangelicalism distinctive. 
practically every fashionable religious trend or new perspective that you'll ever see touted as wonderful and revolutionary by the Gospel Coalition or in the pages of Christianity Today magazine, all of those ideas are ideas that Spurgeon would have steadfastly opposed. And as a matter of fact, many of the pragmatic notions that drive popular evangelicalism today are ideas that Spurgeon did oppose when the modernists proposed them. Anyone who claims to like Spurgeon really ought to consider that fact and read some of his controversial material. So my goal in this lecture is to give you a little glimpse of the real Spurgeon, true and unvarnished. And in this session, we, we get really to the heart of it. Here's a fact we need to note. Although Spurgeon was criticized as outdated and old-fashioned, derided as a theological fossil by other Christians in his own time, notice that Spurgeon still speaks to our age. Ironically, though, the, the men of his time who seemed so stylish and forward-looking then, they're the ones who are outmoded and mostly forgotten today. We barely remember only a few of them. Joseph Parker, for example, you'll hear his name again. I'm going to do a whole, whole series uh, in our next, a uh, whole session in our next lecture about Joseph Parker and his relationship with Spurgeon. But he savagely criticized Spurgeon even at Spurgeon's death. And the average young pastor in late Victorian England firmly believed that Joseph Parker represented the church of the future, that his methodology and his style, that's what we need to emulate if we're going to remain relevant in a changing world. That's what pretty much all the young evangelicals believed at the end of Spurgeon's life, that the guy you wanna follow is Joseph Parker, not Charles Spurgeon. Parker will keep the church alive and he'll keep going, whereas Spurgeon is already old fashioned and too out of date. The opposite was true. Spurgeon, who was considered old-fashioned and, and outmoded and in every way unfashionable, we still read him. In fact, try this for yourself. Read a few of Spurgeon's sermons and, and then try to read some of Joseph Parker's sermons. Parker is the one who is really a product of his times. He was trying to be timely and he was, which means he's grossly outdated today. Spurgeon understood that truth is timeless, and he preached that way. And for that reason, his sermons are still edifying to us. Parker's the one who sounds quaint and old-fashioned today. Spurgeon still speaks as powerfully as ever. All of Spurgeon's works are still in print and still influential. And even the battles Spurgeon fought are still relevant to us. Practically, I mentioned this yesterday, but practically all of his controversial writings are as timely now as they were the day they were written. We're still fighting some of the same battles today. And that suggests the fact that everything Spurgeon wrote that was controversial is still relevant today. That shows that he chose his battles well. He picked the right fights. From the year 2005 until 2011, I wrote a blog every day. I published a blog, and on Sundays, I would post excerpts from Spurgeon's sermons. 
to, to sort of illustrate this phenomenon that I'm talking about. At the height of the emerging church movement, some of you will remember that, 20 years ago, 15 years ago or so, the emerging church movement was this liberalizing influence that was trying to bring the church into the postmodern age. And, uh, and, I, and I was quoting Spurgeon to answer some of their arguments. Spurgeon had solid answers for the evangelical trendsetters of our generation. I'm talking about people like Brian McLaren and Andy Stanley and Stephen Furtick and all the progressives and all the neoliberals who currently are, are driving big movement evangelicalism in America and the United Kingdom. Spurgeon anticipated and answered all of them. He answered the pragmatism of Bill Hybels and, and Rick Warren. He likewise deplored the, the swaggering, foul-mouthed style that became so popular in the first decade of this new millennium that was epitomized by men like Mark Driscoll and James McDonald, who liked to get really crude in the pulpit. Spurgeon foresaw that and spoke against it. And I'm quite certain Spurgeon has answers for Every novelty that might assault evangelical churches in the next 50 years or so as well. Because he dealt with truth as a timeless thing, and it is. Consider, for example, the recent attacks on substitutionary atonement and the idea of penal substitution. Because among progressive and postmodern evangelicals today, there is a widespread distaste for the idea that God punished Christ for the sins of believers. And the question frequently comes up, why would a loving God do that? Why would he punish his own son? Why couldn't God simply forgive and ignore our sins without exacting some kind of blood atonement? The principle of propitiation, that is a satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin, that makes God sound vindictive and harsh. Who needs that? That's what postmoderns and progressives today always say. In fact, a decade ago, Steve Chalk, a well-known evangelical leader and media figure in England, wrote a book in which he compared the idea of penal substitution to cosmic child abuse. That was the expression he used. And N.T. Wright, who at least at the time, was the most formidable and, and popular academic evangelical in all of England. He endorsed that book. And in America, Brian McLaren echoed that same line about child abuse in one of his books. And suddenly, substitutionary atonement was on the table for discussion. And sadly, most Christian leaders in our generation were completely unprepared to defend that doctrine. Because that idea that, that the atonement is a penal substitution, that is a, a punishment for sin that Christ paid even though he wasn't guilty of those sins, that idea had not been explicit in evangelical teaching for decades. And lots of young evangelicals were completely stymied by the criticism, and they were prepared to do away with this idea of propitiatory atonement. Just, they were just going to do away with it because they'd never heard it and they didn't know how to defend it. And uh, Rob Bell even staged a road show with a big phony stone altar and a, as a prop. Well, he went around America and I think even took it to places outside our country 
attacking the idea that Christ's sacrifice had anything to do with, sacrifice, with uh, satisfying the, the wrath of God. He didn't like that idea, that Christ paid the price of sin in order to satisfy divine wrath. Well, it turns out Spurgeon had quite a lot to say about that doctrine in his day because it's a fact that the modernists of the Victorian era were just as keen to sanitize the, the gospel and do away with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. They were they had the same view as postmodernists today do. In fact, listen to what Spurgeon had to say about this issue. He said, quote, I will not foul my mouth with the unworthy phrases which have been used in reference to the substitutionary work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a sore grief of heart to note how these evil things are tolerated by men whom we respect. See, I would have said the same thing at the beginning of, of this millennium when uh, substitutionary atonement was under attack and leading men in the evangelical movement said nothing about it. And in fact, some of them even joined in the criticism. Spurgeon says, I would like to rise from my bed during the last five minutes of my life to bear witness to the divine sacrifice and the sin atoning blood. I would then repeat those words which speak the truth of substitution most positively. Even should I shock my hearers, for how could I regret that as in heaven my first words will be to ascribe my salvation to my master's blood, my last act on earth was to shock his enemies by a testimony to the same fact. Is that militant enough for you? Spurgeon believed that clarity and biblical accuracy were far more important in the proclamation of truth than the question of whether someone might be offended if we speak too clearly. Besides, he was convinced that the whole essence of the gospel was contained in the doctrine of atonement. And so he spelled it out plainly. He said this, quote, The doctrine of Holy Scripture is this, that inasmuch as man could not keep God's law, having fallen in Adam, Christ came and fulfilled the law on the behalf of his people, and that inasmuch man, as man had already broken the divine law and incurred the penalty of the wrath of God, Christ came and suffered in the room, place, and stead of his elect ones, so that by his enduring the full vials of divine wrath, they might be emptied out and not a drop might ever fall upon the heads of his blood-bought people. And you'll find as you read the work, works of Spurgeon, that certain key points of controversy run all the way through his ministry from start to finish, and this is one of the main ones. He was always speaking in defense of substitutionary atonement. And as I keep saying, Spurgeon was a reluctant controversialist. I, I don't think he had any expectation that wave after wave of controversy would assault him from the time he first accepted the call to be the pastor at the New Park Street Chapel. Remember, this was a historic and prestigious pulpit, and the church it was already ancient by the time, by, at least by evangelical standards, by the time Spurgeon came to London. And in fact, the people of the church 
had already forgotten that John Rippon was only 20 years old when he became the senior pastor of that church in 1773. Because Rippon stayed there for more than 60 years and was an old man when he died, but he started at age 20. And a lot of people, when Spurgeon came to London, feared that he was far too young to take on the mantle of uh, Benjamin Keach and John Gill and John Rippon. But Spurgeon was, as we've seen already, an amazingly gifted preacher even before he turned 20. And so both fame and infamy immediately overwhelmed him when he came to London. He had crowds of appreciative listeners who would come everywhere he spoke, so much so that the New Park Street Chapel, which remember that was built to seat 1,200 people, but it simply couldn't hold the crowds who wanted to hear Spurgeon. And in February of 1855, when Spurgeon had been pastor for less than a year, the Sunday morning services were moved to a place called Exeter Hall. Exeter Hall was a famous evangelical auditorium in the Strand. Oh, I'm not, I'm way behind here. There, that's Exeter Hall. Uh, the Strand is that elegant street in central London that runs parallel to the river from Trafalgar Square all the way to Fleet Street. If you're familiar with London today, Exeter Hall stood on a site that is today occupied by the Strand Palace Hotel. Uh, that's right across from the entrance to the Savoy Hotel. So it's in an elite part of the city. Exeter Hall featured two auditoriums. One of them seated a thousand people and it wasn't big enough, obviously, to hold the audiences that came to hear Spurgeon, but the larger auditorium seated 4,000, and it was this cavernous, ostentatiously, ostentatiously uh, decorated and inadequately ventilated room. This was the largest auditorium in all of London, and I don't think Spurgeon himself was particularly fond of it. The, the room was beset with notorious acoustical problems. Uh, the composer Hector Berlioz had uh, conducted some orchestra concerts there a few months before Spurgeon's congregation started using it, and it turned out to be a really poor venue for musical performances because it had not been built with acoustics in mind, and that's a bad thing in an era where there was no amplification. But this was the best venue in central London for Spurgeon's ministry. It was easily acceptable, accessible by um, public transport. It was the headquarters of the YMCA in the United Kingdom, and it was well known this building was the hub of evangelical activity in London. And in fact, no less than Cardinal Newman, uh, John Henry Newman, the infamous Anglican priest who ultimately became a Roman Catholic cardinal. Uh, and Newman was famous in the early 1800s, but I think still was alive when Spurgeon came to London. He had written a sarcastic diatribe against Exeter Hall, this building, in 1838. That was almost two decades before Spurgeon appeared there. Cardinal Newman hated the place because to him, 
This symbolized the large-scale growth and popularity of Protestant evangelicalism in England, which that's what Newman deplored. It's the reason he left the Anglican Church to become a Catholic. He ridiculed the evangelical movement as artificial and superficial and ugly. And let's face it, in Newman's time, evangelicalism was already flirting with shallow intellectualism and pragmatism and cheesy revivalistic tactics. And in fact, those same, all those tendencies have come into full flower in our generation. Large-scale evangelicalism today is shallow and pragmatically driven and cheesy. You have that word, cheesy? Major changes had taken place in British evangelicalism during the first half of that century, and, and most of them were not good. The days of Benjamin Keach were long gone when nonconformists were commonly placed in stocks and held up for public ridicule and looked upon as the outcasts of society. Evangelicalism had steadily become more and more popular and genteel and sort of upper class and middle class. There was a strong move already underway to make the evangelical message, the message that was preached, they wanted to make it more refined and more respectable. And you know, English has, England has always had strong class distinctions. And in 19th century evangelicals, they desperately wanted to seem as if they were socially well-bred. And Exeter Hall, with its prime location in the Strand, symbolized all of that. So this was a convenient brick and mortar symbol for Cardinal Newman to attack. This, this venue represented everything Newman hated about evangelicalism, both good and bad. And on top of all of that, Exeter Hall had been a hotbed of opposition to the tract Tractarians and the Oxford movement. And uh, of course, John Henry Newman's leadership in that movement was what first brought him to public prominence. It was a movement to turn Anglicans into Catholics. And Newman had begun his ministry as an evangelical and a Calvinist. And he turned into a fierce enemy of everything he had once proclaimed. And in that 1838 article, uh, it was published in a, a periodical called The British Critic. Newman quoted from a quaint little book titled Random Recollections of Exeter Hall, written by an anonymous author who identified himself only as one of the Protestant party. No one, I think to this day, no one really knows who it was, but uh, Newman quotes the, the, the author's pseudonym, one of the Protestant party, and he asks the question, is this a joke or is this in earnest? So you can hear from the very start the tone of his contempt. And Newman quotes this book's description of Exeter Hall, which is detailed enough that I want to read it to you to give you a, a sense of the vast size of this auditorium. Remember, as I, as I read this, remember that La Scala, which is usually considered the finest opera house in all of Europe. La Scala seats only 800, 1,800 people, 1,800. Exeter Hall was more than twice that large. So listen now, as one of the Protestant party describes the main auditorium at Exeter Hall. This is where Spurgeon would come to preach 20 years after this was written. 
He says, the large room of Exeter Hall was built to contain 4,000 persons with a splendid range of raised seats. To the left of the main entrance, a spacious area in front of it and a platform which itself will accommodate 500 persons to the right. At the back of the platform were formerly two sunk galleries like the side boxes of a theater which were opened or closed at pleasure by means of movable planks which may be put aside during the progress of a meeting. They are now thrown completely open. The platform itself is elevated about six feet above the floor of the area or central seats and it's finished in front by a handsome iron rail the large and ornamental bars of which this rail are placed about one foot from each other. They're connected at the top by a thick mahogany, mahogany spar. In the center of its front row stands the chair, which in form much resembles that of King Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey. That was a huge wooden throne. And um, he says it is of handsomely carved mahogany with massy open elbows and it's cushioned in the seat and back with purple leather. Its dimensions are very large and any gentleman of small or even of moderate size who may preside can never be said to fill it. Very few chairmen appear to advantage there. Some seem lost in it, others at a loss how to occupy it and where to sit in it, whether backwards or forwards, upright or lounging to the left or to the right. And this book, by the way, which you can read this book for yourself at Google Books, it's been scanned. It goes on to say this, quote, the confirmation of the hall is not favorable to the larger class of human voices. And there are but few speakers who can make themselves well heard throughout the room. The generality speak too low or they have too little power of lungs to be heard far beyond the center of the area, while others who almost deafen the sitters near them are equally unintelligible to those at a distance from the echo of the place itself. Thus, the gentle speeches of Lord Chichester and the thundering oratory of Dr. Duff are nearly all alike pantomime to the occupants of the raised seats, though from diametrically opposite causes, for the doctor speaks just as much too loud as their lordship's voices are too low. So he's saying, if you sat anywhere other than front and center, you just couldn't hear the speaker. There was a massive pipe organ and a vast choir loft behind the speaker, and these engravings of the time show the choir loft full of about 200 listeners while Spurgeon was speaking. There are lots of illustrations that show Spurgeon preaching from this platform. And he evidently managed to make himself heard and understood in that vast room, even without any amplification, because I've never read a single suggestion otherwise. No one ever said it was hard to hear Spurgeon in the corners of that room. But his popularity with the crowds who came to hear him was counterbalanced by the hostility he received in the press and from ministers of the Anglican Church and from the sophisticated hordes of London's theater society and from England's literary elite and academic snobs, all of them hated Spurgeon. And he was constantly under attack from people who caricatured him or falsely accused him or berated him for his steadfast commitment to biblical truth in times in a time when it was becoming fashionable actually to question the accuracy and authority of scripture in favor of 
modern learning. You know, this was the era of Darwin and the rise of modernism and Spurgeon's influence and his popularity among the working class people of Britain. It still couldn't turn back the drift of the culture as a whole, which became more and more worldly and more and more modernized. And so with all of that as background, then I want to skip with you towards the end of Spurgeon's public ministry. And I want to summarize for you the controversy that basically ended his life, namely the downgrade controversy, which more or less began in 1887 and continued through the five final years of his life. This was merely one final recapitulation of the pounding theme that had reverberated through Spurgeon's life from the very time he began his ministry in London until the day he died. And this is how it came about. It was March of 1887. Spurgeon's monthly magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, featured an article that went viral. It was the first of two articles with the title, The Downgrade. The author's name on this article wasn't published, but it was Robert Schindler. He was a Baptist pastor who was a close ally of Spurgeon's. Schindler and Spurgeon most likely consulted on the content of this article. And basically the article was a history lesson about apostasy and how apostasy infects churches and seminaries and whole denominations. And Schindler began by noting in his very first sentence how the original biblically minded and theologically conservative Puritans, how they were dri deliberately driven from the Church of England by the Act of Uniformity in 1662. But Schindler noticed, noted that it wasn't even long after that before signs of apostasy began to infect even the offspring of the Puritans. He said, he said this about the heirs of that first generation of Puritans. Yeah. He said, they did not all continue and stay faithful to Scripture for any great length of time. Some of them, in the course of two or three generations, or even less, became either Arian, that is, they denied the deity of Christ, or Socinian, and that's a sort of classic example of liberal religion that questions the miracles and the authority and the accuracy of Scripture, Socinianism. He says, this was eventually the case with nearly all the Presbyterians and later on with some of the independents and with many of the general Baptist communities, by some means or other, first the ministers and then the churches got on the downgrade. And in some cases, the descent was rapid and in all very disastrous. Now that's a breezy but accurate description of how in reality, towards the end of the 1600s, the Puritan the Puritan movement began already before, before the year 1700 even. They were beginning to abandon core do gospel doctrines and melt into apostasy. They did this mostly, I think, by, by stressing the moral teachings of Scripture and downplaying the miraculous and, and doctrinal content. It just became a kind of moralism that was preached. And the same thing happened in both England and America. And Schindler's point was that he believed that same path towards apostasy was being followed by churches and pastors 
who were at that time influential in the Baptist Union at the end of the 19th century. Now, Spurgeon, of course, was in full agreement with Schindler. And in fact, page one of the article included a footnote written almost certainly by Spurgeon himself. He said, earnest attention is requested for this paper. We are going downhill at breakneck speed. And by the way, in Schindler's assessment, the underlying problem that had caused literally every cycle of apostasy in the history of the church, the underlying problem, he said, every time was a quest for novelty. The notion that the church needs to keep up with the times and that we as Christians need to watch what's happening in the, in the world and try to stay in step with secular culture and the academic elite and, and notions of political correctness or whatever. And if we don't stay in step with those things, the church is going to die. You've heard that argument, I know. And in fact, Schindler ended the argument with this insightful comment, which is one of my favorite quotations from the whole mess. He said, it is all too plainly apparent Men are willing to forego the old for the sake of the new, but commonly it is found in theology that that which is true is not new, and that which is new is not true. The article started a buzz among Baptists, and it received a little bit of pushback from influential Baptist leaders who their initial response was the sword in the trial of the magazine here was just being too pessimistic. They said, no, the future of the church and the Baptist Union is bright, and it's irresponsible for the church not to find ways to uh, absorb and integrate things like Darwin's evolutionary theory and, and critical scholarship. We need to stay aware of those things and integrate them into our teaching. And uh, they said it's no threat to the moral content of Scripture if we wonder about the veracity of the Bible's miracle claims and the gospel can be understood and defined without the doctrine of penal substitution, they said. But then the issue really went viral a month later when the Sword and the Trial published a follow-up article, again, under the title, The Downgrade. This was a second article with the same title, but a whole new article. This one argued that apostasy advances not only because of the evil designs of false teachers, but also because of the passivity of good men who don't step up and, and challenge the heretics because they think it's somehow uncharitable to say so, someone else is in error. And furthermore, Schindler implied that the church leader who sees error but then turns a blind eye to it and remains deliberately passive that person is just as culpable for the spread of apostasy as the person who is actively and deliberately advocating false doctrine. And he suggested that Darwin's unbelief had its genesis and was actually encouraged under the teaching of an apostatizing pastor in a church that had originally been founded on sound gospel principles. In fact, here's the way Schindler said it. He wrote, if anyone wishes to know where the tadpole of Darwinism was hatched, we could point him to the pew of the old chapel in High Street, Shrewsbury, where Mr. Darwin and his father, and we believe his father's father, received their religious training. The chapel was built for an esteemed Puritan minister, 
But for very many years, full-blown Socinianism has been taught there. So you'll sometimes hear, by the way, that Darwin grew up in church and he was a solid evangelical believer as a young person. The truth is, the church he went to was liberal. He didn't hear the gospel. And he, he was not taught that scripture is authoritative. And Schindler rehearsed case after case of similar deplorable examples where once sound churches had become mausoleums of heterodoxy and shrines of skepticism. He noted, for example, that the church where Matthew Henry pastored, Matthew Henry, arguably the the best known, most widely read, most familiar of all of the Puritan commentators. You've seen, I'm sure, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible, which has never been out of print since the Puritan era. Uh, The church where Matthew Henry pastored in Chester had, by Spurgeon's era, had abandoned any pretense of fidelity to the authority of Scripture. And Schindler said, in fact, that there's a first edition copy of Matthew Henry's commentary kept on display there. But Schindler said that was the only remaining witness to the truths that were once taught from that pulpit. It's a sad case. Schindler's second article went methodically through every major Protestant denomination, and he recounted how every one of them had been affected by this same pattern of apostasy. By the way, we see the same pattern happening today. And the signs of similar apostasy, Schindler pointed out, these things were now prominent in the Baptist Union. After two articles in two months by Robert Schindler, The issue became a focus of intense controversy. And Schindler was employing the best known and most widely read Baptist periodical, The Sword and the Trowel, Spurgeon's Magazine, in order to sound what really was a noisy and discordant alarm, which needed to be sounded. He was suggesting that pastors and churches in the Baptist Union were already on a road to apostasy and that they urgently needed to get off. The men arguing in favor of doctrinal compromise and and the the people within the Baptist Union who were liberalizing the church's teaching had called their religion progressive orthodoxy. Does that sound familiar? Because the Socinians of today call themselves progressives. Schindler said, progressive orthodoxy? Indeed, the progression is so considerable that the orthodoxy is lost sight of. And he was exactly right. And he had the full agreement of Charles Spurgeon and lots of encouragement from Spurgeon. But the controversy continued to build. And so just a couple of months later, in the August issue of The Sword and the Trowel, Spurgeon himself contributed an article titled, Another Word Concerning the Downgrade. Now, in those intervening months, remember this, this had started in March, now it's August. In all those months, Spurgeon had been besieged, flooded with letters to the editor recounting examples, real-life examples of Baptist apostasy. The controversy and the feedback Spurgeon was getting from both supporters and detractors had convinced him that the situation was actually worse than he had originally imagined. Here's the first paragraph of Spurgeon's article. These are the very first published words with which Charles Spurgeon entered the downgrade controversy. He wrote, 
No lover of the gospel can conceal from himself the fact that these days are evil. We are willing to make a large discount from our apprehensions on the score of natural timidity or the caution of age and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly trending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent and ask yourself, how much further could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth is to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea, it usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. The controversy obviously heated up even more with Spurgeon's weighing in. Spurgeon wrote again in the September issue of his magazine, making it clear that he was not going to modif modify his position. He was not going to apologize for the intensity of his rhetoric. The problems he had pointed out, he believed, and he was right, were very real. And by early October, given the leadership of the Baptist Union and their refusal to acknowledge that Spurgeon's concerns were well-founded, the leaders refused to acknowledge that. Spurgeon was clearly wondering by then if he could even continue as a member of the Baptist Union. And in the October edition of The Sword and the Trowel, without, without getting personal, without naming anybody by name, he described several cases of significant compromise and apostasy from members of the Baptist Union. And then he asked the question that he had been pondering for weeks. He asked, are brethren who remain orthodox prepared to endorse such sentiments by remaining in union with those who hold and teach them? And he added this, one thing is clear to us, we cannot be expected to meet in any union which comprehends those whose teaching is upon fundamental points exactly the reverse of that which we hold dear. To us, it appears there are many things upon which compromise is possible, but there are others in which it would be an act of treason to pretend to fellowship. With deep regret, we abstain from assembling with those whom we dearly love and heartily respect, since it would involve us in a confederacy with those with whom we can have no communion in the Lord. That was his way of announcing he wasn't coming to the the meeting of the Baptist Union that year, but he was them, encouraging them to face this issue and discuss it and resolve it amongst them. And sometime after he wrote those words, the leaders and the church delegates in the Baptist Union held their annual autumn meeting in Sheffield, and it was covered by an evangelical newspaper, The Freeman, which recorded that the downgrade controversy came up in the meetings only superficially. In other words, they didn't really deal with it. In fact, the reporter's exact words, he said, during the meetings, the great joke was the downgrade. It didn't seem to be treated very seriously, unquote. 
And so at the end of October, on Friday the 28th, Spurgeon wrote a letter to Samuel Harris Booth withdrawing his membership in the Baptist Union. It was a simple letter of just two paragraphs saying that the reasons for his resignation were going to be explained in the November issue of The Sword and the Trowel. That issue was already in circulation. This was like the last couple of days of October, and the November issue was already out there in which Spurgeon explained why he is resigning. That's his letter of resignation. I won't read it to you. But on Tuesday of the following week, he wrote his friend and former student, Archibald Brown. Archibald Brown became one of Spurgeon's successors as one of the pastors of the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon's death. Archibald Brown was a younger man who had been trained at Spurgeon's college and whom Spurgeon respected greatly. And Archibald Brown wrote some things that, uh, that are as memorable and uh, he was very Spurgeon-esque in his in his uh, style and in fact some of the things Archibald Brown wrote have been attributed wrongly to Spurgeon because he sounds so much like Spurgeon so these were these were you know like-minded men and Spurgeon wrote this letter on Tuesday to Archibald Brown to encourage him to resign as well I, I own actually the original copy of this letter, the page on which Spurgeon wrote with his own hand. And Spurgeon says, Mr. Booth, that was the, the head of the Baptist Union, received a formal notice from me on Friday. Let him have yours too, for otherwise they will not know of your going with me. We are to sink or swim together. Blessed be God for so dear a comrade. So you can tell he craved the support and encouragement of his friends because so many of the men whom Spurgeon was friends with and dearly loved actually refused to stand with him in this battle. They were afraid it would cost them too much. And in his article in that November issue of The Sword and the Trowel, it was a relatively short article and went straight to the point. It was just 13 paragraphs long, but it included this statement in the second to the last paragraph, quote, we retire at once and distinctly from the Baptist Union, but we want outsiders to know that we are in no wise altered in our faith or in our denominational position, unquote. That's how he announced his resignation. He hated the controversy that now surrounded him, but he was convinced that the drift of the Baptist Union was seriously dangerous and that modernism would drive churches and schools into deep apostasy and that his continued involvement in the Baptist Union was giving an unclear signal. And if there was anything Spurgeon did not want to, want to be guilty of, it was a lack of clarity. He wanted to be clear in every way. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 8, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for the battle? And so in a personal letter to the Secretary of the Union Council, Spurgeon said, I regard full-grown modern thought as a totally new cult, having no more relation to Christianity than the mist of the evening has to the everlasting hills. This was not a popular opinion, and Spurgeon's withdrawal from the Baptist Union only intensified the criticisms his adversaries lobbed at him they called him old and out of touch, and worse yet, they labeled him divisive and uncharitable. 
They claimed that his charges against the compromising Baptist ministers was just gossip, they said, because he didn't name any names. So it was just gossip. This is all just hearsay. Even though the leaders of the union knew exactly who he was talking about and they knew that his accusations were accurate, but they still blew it off as hearsay and claimed that uh, these, were, these were false charges, groundless, unsubstantiated. And of course, that wasn't true. And almost everyone in the Baptist Union knew it wasn't true. But the union leadership were co committed to avoiding any kind of embarrassing public exposure of how far things had got out of hand in the Baptist Union. Most of them had convinced themselves, as Spurgeon put it, these are his words, that there may be a little doctrinal compromise in the Baptist Union, but it's not enough to speak about. And once Spurgeon resigned from the Union, the path of least resistance for those who were unwilling to see reform in the Union, the path of least resistance was to point out, that, to, to point out Spurgeon as a crank or a troublemaker and try to caricature him as a man who had sort of lost his filters and become an old grouch. And in fact, rather than investigating the charges he made or attempting any kind of reform, the Baptist Union Council decided on a totally different strategy. They would make Spurgeon himself the issue. In Spurgeon's words, their plan was to fix on him the odium of being implacable. And in mid-January, the Baptist Council met and voted a formal censure against him. Probably the most shameful thing that ever happened in Baptist history. They passed a censure against him, not content merely to accept his withdrawal. They passed a formal resolution declaring that, quote, in the judgment of the council, the charges Spurgeon brought against fellow members of the Baptist Union ought not to have been made. And here's how one observer at the time described it, analyzing the Baptist Union's action in a paper called The Evangelical Nonconformist. This, this person, Richard Glover, wrote this, quote, The policy which they adopted was to attempt to put the responsibility for disturbing the peace of the Union back on Spurgeon. They took the position that his charges were too vague to merit serious investigations, that he had failed to substantiate them by naming any ministers who were guilty. And however useful this policy might have been politically, it can only be described as a dishonest trifling with the subject, which is absolutely correct. The, the Baptist Union was dishonest with it. They trifled with what, what should have been dealt with as a very serious matter. And so in the next five years, Spurgeon was under constant attack from the Baptist Union. And he continued to write and preach in defense of the authority of Scripture and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and the full deity and lordship of Christ and the importance of biblical orthodoxy and the sermons and the essays that he produced during that those final five years of his life are some of the most poignant and most important works he ever produced. I especially recommend a message that is published as a booklet. You can also download it from the internet titled The Greatest Fight in the World. It's a single sermon, I think, but it's a long one. And it was published in booklet form. And you can read it for yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a call to, to arms for people who love the truth. 
Spurgeon often described himself as battle-weary. He, this, this entire conflict took a heavy toll on his health and sanity, but he never backed away from the fight. And indeed, Spurgeon himself and most of his biographers have said that the stress of this controversy definitely hastened his death. The downgrade controversy, which consumed the final five years of Spurgeon's life, was a particular stress to him, un unlike anything else he had ever experienced. In fact, you may have noticed in an excerpt I read in an earlier session that we had, where Joseph Harold referred to Spurgeon as a martyr. I think that's accurate. And Spurgeon believed that too. I had the privilege a few years ago of reading through a stack of letters that Spurgeon wrote to his flock at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the, in the weeks before he died. I actually held some of the papers in my hand that Spurgeon wrote on in that last bittersweet set of letters that he wrote to his home church. I'll share one of them with, one of them with you in our, I think in our next session. Spurgeon knew he was dying and he himself said it was the fight that was killing him. The incredible stress of the downgrade controversy, his attempts to awaken evangelicals to the dangers of modernism were mostly in vain. And from the perspective of earthly opinion polls at the time, the stand Spurgeon took did very little immediate good. He wasn't having any noticeable impact during those final years of his life. He died feeling, I think to a large degree, that his campaign against modernism had been largely in vain. But he wasn't demoralized. He knew that he would be vindicated in time because he knew that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the truth of God and the church of God. And what he actually accomplished in that fight was monumental. And we who desire to remain faithful to the truth of God's word, we still benefit from Spurgeon's work, and we still ought to aspire to emulate his example. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's both troubling and eye-opening to see that Spurgeon, who began his career in London, sought by so many listeners who wanted to hear him preach, ended without ever changing any note in his message ended at the opposite end of public opinion and and yet it fulfills what our lord told us that if the world hated him it will hate us as well may we see the truth of this and believe it and therefore stand strong regardless of what this world says against the truth may we stand for it for the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.